If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, or you version, your iPad, I don't know how you get to get to uh, your copy of God's Word, but we're coming back this morning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. We're just making our way through this book. This is our fourth week, but I, I thought we would just at the very beginning just pause and read the passage we're going to be looking at, which this morning is 1 Peter, chapter 1, and verses 13 to 21. And because we're just going to do it at the very beginning, I, I thought if we don't often do this, but today it would be good. If you're able, would you just take God's Word? And out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me? I'm going to read it. We're going to publicly read the scripture together. Then we'll pray and then we'll dig into it. But let's begin by just reading and listening to God's word. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. I'll read. You follow along in your copy of God's word. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Heavenly Father, we recognize this as your word, and we confess that our faith and our hope is in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ. So this morning, as your word is open in front of us, would you cause our minds to be alert, to understand the words, our ears would be open to hear what you are saying, our hearts would be receptive to receive what you are speaking to us, and that our hands and our feet would be ready and quick to go where you're calling us to go and to do what you were calling us to do. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So I spent the first 35 years of my life growing up uh, on the West Coast. So as far as I had ever known up to that point in life, barbecue was a verb. Um, I always believed that barbecue was something that you did. Um, what are you going to do on the 4th of July? And say, well, we're going to have some people over and have a little bit of a pool party, hang out, and then barbecue some hamburgers and hot dogs later on. That's all I ever knew. So when 35 years into life we moved our family to Oklahoma, the good folks there were absolutely appalled at my lack of understanding regarding a topic as important as barbecue. Barbecue is not a verb. Barbecue is a noun. So there's a vocabulary. So cookout is the event that you go to, grill is what you do, and barbecue is the meat that you eat. Now, it might be baby back ribs or spare ribs or beef short ribs or brisket or pulled pork or sausages or better yet, all of these, but barbecue describes the basic food group of life. Now, there may be an adjective that is attached to this noun. It might be Memphis style or Kansas City style or Texas style or Carolina or Oklahoma barbecue, but these are all just variations on the theme, the noun, the object, which is the meat. To barbecue a hamburger is a basic contradiction in terms. It cannot be done. 
because hamburger does not belong to the food group. See, up to that point in life, I always used it as a verb. I now understand that barbecue is primarily a noun, and to people who know, this makes an absolutely huge difference. Is it a noun or is it a verb? Now, here's another word that is better understood as a noun, and that word is hope. From a biblical perspective, hope is more about what you have than what you do. But the problem for us is that the way we talk today, 95% of the time, we use this word as a verb. Is something we're wishing for, something we're desiring to happen, you know, hoping for. I hope that my refund comes through this week. I, I hope it's not too hot on Saturday. I hope the Diamondbacks win today. It's not likely, but I hope so. That's the way we use the word all the time. But the way the Bible uses the word is different. According to the Bible, hope is primarily not something you do, but it's something you possess. Hope means a confident expectation. Hope is having a certainty that God will do that which he has certainly promised to do. And this concept of hope, This possession that we have as a birthright of salvation, it is incredibly important to this New Testament book of 1 Peter. Peter began his letter up in verse 3 by saying this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if you have been born again, if you are a Christian, if you belong to the kingdom, you have been born again to a living hope. This is not something this is something that you now have in your life. Not that you need to seek for. This is something that is your possession. And what this means is that a confident expectation that God will most certainly do that which he's promised to do. This belongs to you. And what the Apostle Peter wants you to understand and what we're looking at today is that this settled hope is the foundation for transformational living, even when circumstances are growing increasingly difficult. Now, we read just a minute ago our passage for the day, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 13. And this verse, and the first word, is a huge transition point, turning point in the message of Peter to these exiles. Remember, Peter's writing to those that are finding themselves increasingly on the margins of their society, largely dismissed, increasingly alienated, discriminated against even. And Peter's writing to encourage them. You may feel like outsiders in the place where you're living, but you need to know that in the place that matters most and to the one who matters most, you are insiders to the grace of God. You have been chosen by God's own hand. You've been born again to a living hope, granted an eternal inheritance. And even now at this very moment, you are being protected personally by the power of God unto the final day of salvation. Verse 13 Therefore, and here in verse 13, this is a really significant therefore. Now, therefore always means in light of what I have just told you, in light of that, now pay attention to this. In light of the fact 
that in the place that matters most and to the one that matters most, you are chosen as the most treasured possession of God on high and the apple of his eye. Therefore, in light of everything I have just said, this is practically what you now should expect in your life increasingly day by day as a result of what God has already done for you and in you. And as we unpack this, therefore, there are going to be three key words that we're going to talk about today. The words are hope, holy, and respect. Now let's take those one at a time. Hope. Verse 13, therefore, in light of everything I've already told you, with minds that are alert and sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now, the main idea of this entire passage is this, just, just in case you got to run, get this down and, and then you're free to go. The main idea of the entire passage right here is that if your hope is set in the right place, now I'm not talking about something you're pleasantly wishing for, but something you are confident of, certain of, a settled expectation of something overwhelmingly good by the hand of God that is to come. If your hope is set in the right place, then in your everyday life, it is going to follow behind in the right direction. If your hope is set in the right place, then your everyday life invariably will follow in the right direction. Now, for us as Christians, the focus of our hope always is the appearing of Jesus Christ. This is the blessed hope when he will be revealed in glory to fulfill every promise for those who are waiting for him. Those are waiting for him in hope a confident, certain expectation that he will come. And Peter gives two descriptions of what it looks like to have your hope properly set. He says first, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Minds that are fully alert. Now, that first expression literally is this, gird up the loins of your mind. So if you're here and, and you're, or you're watching us and you've got the King James Version in front of you and it says that, it's not just making up weird expressions on purpose, it, but that's literally what the expression says. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now that actually for me is not a very common expression. Sometimes I, I can go an entire week without saying gird up the loins of your mind. But in the world of the Bible, that was meaningful. Because most people went around usually wearing long robes. And these, of course, had many advantages. But what flowing robes were not good for was running or playing ultimate frisbee or other strenuous activity. So if someone was getting ready to do something strenuous, run a 40-yard dash or play ultimate frisbee or whatever, they would, they would take their robe and they would pull it up between their legs and tie it up with their belt, basically turning it into a pair of shorts. That's what it meant to gird up your loins. It means get suited up, get ready for action. But so Peter says, get yourself ready for action, but then he adds to it in your mind. So get your head into the game, but he says it in this colorful way. Get suited up, get get geared up in your mind. Having hope that is properly set will require a mind that is focused. Jesus Christ is coming back again. This is the consummate event, not only in our lives, but in the history of the universe. And we know with certainty, surety, this is going to happen. Therefore, 
In light of this, we've got to get our heads in the game. We've got to get our minds focused on this hope. Secondly, this will require an attitude of readiness with minds that are fully alert and sober. Now, that word originally meant just that, sober, not schnocker. But the way the New Testament uses the word, it always means being alert and having your wits about you spiritually in light of what's coming. So, for instance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. It'll catch other people by surprise, but not you because you know the signs. So then, he says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Something really big and tremendously good is coming, and you know that it's coming. Therefore, in light of this, make sure your mind is focused and you have an attitude of readiness at all times. It's like you're waiting for your first baby to arrive, and you are now at 39 and a half weeks And there is no denying that this day is coming and that is coming very, very soon. Therefore, in light of that, be alert and sober. Have your go bag packed and ready. Make sure that the car is gassed up at all times. Sleep with one eye open. This is just a basic principle of life. When we are fixed on a consummate day that is soon to come. We say consummate day, we mean a life-changing, epic day. When we are fixed and focused on a consummate day that is soon to come of necessity, it will transform the way we live, the way we think every single day in the present. And when you first know that baby is coming, of course, you start getting ready. You paint the nursery, you put together the crib, you go to the birthing classes. But the closer it gets, the more your mind naturally gets fixated on the certainty of what is coming. And you literally live every single day with the constant thought of readiness for what is going to happen on that day. It's a really, really big day. Your wedding day, it's a really big day and it's coming. And 42 days, three hours and 16 minutes when you walk down that aisle and you take the hand of the love of your life. And because of your confident expectation of that soon coming life transforming day on the calendar, there are a thousand different decisions every single day between here and there that are shaped by that coming day. Everything is done in this day with that day in mind because it's a really, really big day. Graduation day. It's coming, and it's soon, and you are confident of its arrival. And while you still have three tests and two papers and one final presentation yet to make, you've got family that is coming in, and airline tickets have been bought, and hotel reservations have been made, and you've already picked up your cap and gown, and your confident expectation of that soon coming day drives your conduct for all the days in between to stay up a little later and to study a little harder and to stay awake and to pay attention and to remain sober because the day is coming and it's a really, really big day. And all of these for the believer should merely be a reflection of the great and coming day of the blessed hope for us. Jesus Christ is going to be revealed in glory and he will bring with him complete salvation, and the final installment of all of the Father's grace, the fulfillment of every promise that ever he has made to us. 
Now I know that probably for most of us who are, who are gathered here today, we would say, of course, I completely agree, understand that all of this is true theologically, doctrinally, biblically. I'm totally on board with all of this. But this is not the question that Peter is asking. He's not saying, do you agree with this theologically? He is asking, is your mindset on this practically daily? As a functional reality, are you suited up and ready for action? Are you alert? Are you sober? Are you focused? Is your mind actively centered on this hope? And here's specifically why I ask. I want you to listen to this part right here very closely. It is impossible for you to have your mind centered, fixed, focused on this hope and simultaneously sin. It is impossible for you to have your mind centered, focused, fixed on the soon coming of Jesus Christ and simultaneously sin. It is impossible for you to have your mind centered, focused, fixed on the hope of Jesus Christ and simultaneously be defeated. Now, you can do one or you can do the other, but you can't do them both. Have your mind centered on the hope that is to come because when our minds are fixed on the certain hope of Jesus Christ, this is going to transform of necessity absolutely everything else. Hope properly set naturally results in holiness that is practically demonstrated. Verse 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope, on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy yourselves in all you do. Hope that is properly set results naturally in holy that is practically demonstrated. And again, Peter gives two parts to this instruction. Here's the negative part of his instruction first. He says, don't allow yourself to be reconformed to your old desires. Don't allow yourselves to be reconformed to your old desires. Whatever the motivations and desires are that used to drive your life, power, success, beauty, money, stuff, pleasure, revenge, whatever it was that was driving, propelling you in life before, do not allow yourself to be reconformed to them all over again. And he isn't saying here that you should not do this to yourself. He says do not allow yourself to be reconformed to them all over again. Because whatever these former drives were, you need to resist them because they are going to come back and try to reconform you again. It will not take effort on your part to go back to these former motivations and drives. They will naturally appear all by themselves. Don't worry, you're not going to have to go looking for them. What will take intentionality is to not be conformed. Back to these again. The only other time this word is used in the New Testament is in Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. And it has there the exact same sense. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, 
and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed. And that's the same word that Peter is using there. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The battle for life transformation always begins, it is always ultimately won or lost in the mind. When your mind is set on the mercy of God that has been given, when your mind is set on the hope of Christ that is soon to come, then the transformation of God becomes an inevitable daily reality. Don't allow yourself to be reconformed to your old desires, but rather because some become something distinctly different in your manner of living. And I use that expression because that is my best, simplest definition for what we mean when we say the word holy. Holy is distinctly different, set apart from all the rest. Now, of course, holy in the scriptures takes on the connotation of purity and goodness and righteousness, but the root idea is that whatever is holy is set apart. It is distinctly different from all of the rest. So first and foremost, God is holy. Be holy as I am holy. God is holy in his character, but also in his essence. He is completely other, completely unlike anything else that exists in all of the universe. And he has called us, therefore, as his people, to be a holy people. Therefore, we must intentionally set our minds to resist the things which shaped our lives before as we progressively grow into the reality of that which we have already been called and have become. And what have we been declared to be? He has declared that we are saints. He has declared that you and I, by faith, we are holy. And whatever God calls to be, inevitably comes to be. There's nothing that God ever calls to be that does not come to be. And he has called you. He has called me saints. So what is our mission right now today? To the best of our knowledge, to the best of our ability, with God's help, that is the transforming power of his spirit within us to grow up and to live out that which we have been called. To practically live out more and more every single day that which we have been declared and set apart to be, which is holy. Now here's a very practical takeaway about everyday transformation or everyday defeat. To be reconformed back to the shape of your former passions, no further action will be required. To be reconformed back to the shape of your former passions, no further action will be required. It will come back all on its own. If you want it back the way it was before, just wait for it. No further action will be required on your part. I mean, think about it. Let's say that you went through an an amazing, dramatic, physical transformation with the help of a a coach and a program. Over six months, you went through a dramatic reshaping, and you lose weight, and you build muscle, you gain mobility and endurance, and and you get your confidence and sparkle back in your eyes, and you look in the mirror, and you see there a dramatically different person than the one that you were for the last 25 years. What will be required of you to now regain the shape of the person that you used to be for so long? Absolutely nothing. No further action will be required. Just ride along. Just give it some time. 
Without fail, the old desires, patterns, and currents that shaped you before will shape you again. All you have to do is give it time. To be reconformed will require no further action, but to be transformed ongoingly into the image of something distinctly different, that is what will require intentionality, even when you have experienced dramatic life change. Even the most dramatically different, transformed people in the world can find themselves ever so slowly, ever so subtly reshaped back into what they were before. And it happens so steadily and gradually that it's almost like they woke up one day and it happened all at once. Experiencing enduring dramatic transformation in your life will require intentionality to keep pushing against the current of where life will take you all on its own. Happens subtly. So I've been a pastor nearly 30 years now. And it has been really amazing to watch what this pandemic has so subtly done to so many Christians who were so incredibly disciplined in so many ways before. Like, for instance, the discipline, the habit, the pattern of gathering together with God's people. Now, in the beginning of this pandemic of necessity, we all did what we had to do. We all sheltered in our homes. We started broadcasting out what looked like hostage videos. We we tried every creative thing we could think of just to keep people connected and encouraged. But then something odd occurred. The restrictions began to lift. Hundreds of millions of people got vaccinated. The mask mandates were lifted. The social distancing requirements went away. Toilet paper was back on the shelves at the store. 16,000 people were at the Suns game this week. But do you know that when Sunday morning comes, there are still millions of people who call themselves Christians in America who are still sheltering in place? Now, I'm not talking about anyone connected to our our church. I'm talking about other Christians that I've heard about who are out there. I'm just asking the question, why are there millions of Christians who are still sheltering in place when Sunday mornings come? Because it's amazing. Even when discipline has become a significant part of our life, if we're not careful, however so slowly, ever so subtly, we can get reshaped back into how it was before. D.A. Carson, Don Carson was one of the professors in my doctoral program, and, and he once wrote this. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. People do not drift towards holiness. No matter who you are, what would be required to regain the shape of the person you used to be? Nothing. No further action will be required. Just ride along and give it some time. The old desires, patterns, and currents that shape the old you will bring it all back again. Just give it time. But to be transformed, 
into the image of something distinctly different. Ah, now that will require intentionality. He says in verse 17, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And the word for reverent fear there is phobos. We get our word phobia from it. It means terror, fear, fright. And we are quick to explain, of course, that as children of God, the Bible is not suggesting that we should live our lives fearful, afraid of our Heavenly Father. And that is true, of course. But we might be scooting away from the concept just a little bit too quickly. You see, this Greek word had a very broad range of meanings, all the way on one end of the spectrum from respect to revere to awe to fear, fright, scared. Now, see, we have different word groups for all of these ideas, but for them, all of these concepts were connected together. But common to all of these ideas, these words, was that there was a strong emotional response provoked by a thing or a person of greatness, of power, stature, immensity of some sort. And so phobos is what you would feel standing in front of a 1,200-pound grizzly bear. It is a strong emotional response. But phobos is also something that you would feel standing at the base of a 14,000-foot mountain peak soaring up before you. A provoked, strong emotional response in the presence of immensity of a person or thing. Phobos is something you might feel when you see flag-draped coffins returning from a war zone. And to see these lined up, it feels like a pride and great sadness mixed together in the presence of ones who had such greatness. But it's always a deep emotional response. And whether that comes out scared out of your mind or overwhelmed with deep awe or moved with profound respect, the idea is that the immensity of the person or the thing we are in the presence of should provoke within us this heightened response. He says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, our God, The Father Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, radiant in eternal power and glory, he's wrapped in unapproachable light, the righteous judge over all the earth. This is our Father. And while there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we will all stand, Romans 14 says, before the judgment seat of God, and we will give an account of ourselves to him. Therefore, live your lives with respect, Peter says. Reverence, awe, deep honor. Heightened response that is becoming. So here's the problem with this for us. We don't do respect. We don't do reverence very well. And I don't mean us here. I, I just mean culturally speaking, this isn't our strong suit. Reverence. Gert Hofstede was a Dutch social psychologist who pioneered research into basic cultural dimensions and the differences that these dimensions articulate between different people groups around the globe. And this has been expanded by many social scientists over the past 65 years. But he first identified these six basic cultural 
continuums that define the basic differences between people groups. And, and without getting lost in all the details, the first was what he called the power distance continuum. And it strongly relates to the way different cultures show respect or give reverence. And this is not to suggest that any culture is in any way superior to any other. It's just that different cultures are wired differently, just like different people are wired differently. So cultures that have a high power distance find respect and reverence in relationships to come much more naturally. Those with a low power distance, so in other words, less distance between those in power and those not, they tend to gravitate towards things like like equality and personal responsibility. So the American culture we live in, what do you suppose we have? Do you believe that we have a big high power distance or a low power distance? Compared to other cultures in the world, we have an extremely low power distance. Now, that doesn't mean that we're any better or any worse than anyone else around the world. That's just the way we function. But here's why this matters. Because the way we are culturally wired, we don't naturally do reverence very good in relationships. It's not our strong suit. A lot of good things about us. Reverence is not one of them. This is going to be especially hard for us. We don't do respect very well, let alone awe. So when it says here in verse 17, in light of who your father is, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. A lot of times we aren't really sure what to do with that other than to remind ourselves it doesn't mean you need to run around being scared of God. Okay, got that. But what does it mean? In light of the fact that you are exiles here, foreigners, my Bible says. Living here in this kingdom in which we don't belong, representing another kingdom where we truly do belong, and in light of who your Father is, the Creator Almighty, glorious, powerful, holy, eternal, carry yourselves here with a level of dignity and respect, with reverence, with awe even, appropriate to the one you belong to. In light of the majesty of who your heavenly father is and in light of the immensity of the cost by which you were purchased. Verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things, perishable things, such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. And you recognize there's a certain irony in what Peter is saying here. It wasn't with perishable things such as silver or gold by which you were redeemed. Because generally, we would think of silver and gold as what? Very durable things. At least it's not, you know, it may not be the hottest investment in the world, but at least it's not going anywhere. I may not know what's going to happen with this whole Bitcoin thing, but I'm pretty certain that a hundred years from now, the gold and silver is still going to be around and it will still be valuable. But in light of eternity, Peter reminds us again, silver and gold really aren't fundamentally different from bananas. Stacked up against eternity, all of them are rapidly depreciating assets. It was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you. Now, Peter is in this passage described our old way of living, Our old way of thinking in two ways. Number one, verse 14, it was ignorant. Verse 18 says it was empty. It was vain. So 
in the end, ultimately leaving nothing of enduring eternal significance behind. And what was the price to set you free from a life like that? A life that was by itself senseless and meaningless. It wasn't with silver and gold, these rapidly depreciating assets. You were redeemed from your old way of life, of senseless and meaningless living, with by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Jesus Christ literally poured out his own lifeblood in order to set you free from a life that was senseless and meaningless, to pay the ransom price. Live, therefore, with a proper sense of dignity, reverence, awe even. Carry yourself in such a way that it would be reflective of the gravity of the majesty and the immensity of the cost by which you were brought out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Live out your time here as exiles, appropriately so, in reverent fear. Therefore, therefore, chosen ones of God, born again to a living hope, granted a priceless eternal inheritance and protected personally by the very hand of God. Therefore, even in light of the challenges that are growing around you, the difficulties that is building, therefore, fix your mind on the hope, live your life with the holy, conduct yourselves with the reverence in light of the gravity of the majesty and the immensity of the cost by which you have been set free. Therefore, verse 13, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Hope is not something that you do. Hope is something in Christ Jesus that you now have. Fix your minds today on this possession that as a child of God you have been given. Because when your mind is truly set on the hope of necessity, your behavior will be transformed while you wait. Heavenly Father, we just confess to you that, by and large, our, our lives have been so comfortable that while we theologically embrace the fact that Jesus Christ will return in glory, practically speaking, we don't often look for it. In fact, sometimes when we do think about it, we think about when we would not like it to happen because there are good plans coming up. Vacations, retirement, cruises, promotion. And honestly, we'd kind of like to press through that first. Well, we're just confessing it. We're not saying it's right. We're just admitting it. That by and large, our lives have been so comfortable that we don't think that way much, even though your word calls us to be fixed, set, concentrating on the hope that is to come. Lord, if our lives had become a touch more uncomfortable living as outsiders, but this would help our hearts and our minds 
to be alert, sober, fixed, focused, set on the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, we will take it. Because the priceless hope is worth the current inconvenience anytime. So we're confessing the way it often has been and we're just asking you that you'll change us by your spirit within us, less and less like who we used to be, more and more like who you've declared us to be, people living every single day, fixed and focused on hope. Lord, we know that hope has been given to us in Jesus Christ, so it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.